Tonight on Episode 7, we'll have some interactive question and answer, even though this is pre-recorded, where I'm going to ask you some questions, give you a couple of ideas, and we can look at your ability to detect deception. Along with that, I'll give you some explanations as well as some examples. If you follow the Gray Man Concepts Facebook page, some of these answers you may already know. And one or two may come from previous podcasts. When you get a question right, before you pat yourself on the back, be honest with yourself and ask, why did I get that right? Did you just make a shot in the dark or did you have some instinctual notion on why you knew that to be true? When you get one wrong, take the same approach. Figure out, was it a preconceived notion or idea that you had, something that you hold to believe to be true, a bias or some other reason, or was it just a shot in the dark? I'll also direct you to one of the books for reference I mentioned before, as well as an associated website where you can find this actual test, do some of your own research, and find where I get some of my information. While I have a lot of this knowledge and training myself, I have no desire to reinvent the wheel. If something out there is acceptable to me and already created, I use that material to help educate you and give you other resources to look at. As an intelligence collector, I'm a big fan of multi-source reporting, which means getting information from more than one place. So I'll definitely always try to steer you to other locations to expand your knowledge and research database so that you can come to your own conclusions, make your own discoveries, and develop these skills to use for yourself. So we'll be doing that here tonight on Gray Man Hiding in Plain Sight. The meat and potatoes of any collector talks to an individual, which is primary human intelligence and counterintelligence, is the period of question and answer. We previously talked about PIRs and HCRs, the requirements and questions that commanders and decision makers have that they need answered in order to start the intelligence process or add to the intelligence process to figure out what to do next or what they're going to do now. A large portion of the training they go through is asking these questions and developing questioning plans. What's logical follow-up? How do I go through this in the future? There's rapport building, approach techniques for interrogation, making your sources comfortable, asset handling, and several other techniques and tips and tradecraft practices in order to get that intelligence and get it into the intelligence cycle in order to answer these questions that commanders and decision makers have. The bulk of these collectors are at the lower levels of the intelligence echelon, especially in military intelligence. And the training they don't get or have very minimal amount of time on is detecting deception. The reason for this is the availability of training and professionals that have this training, as well as the process of getting something like this that seems philosophical or theoretical in the hands of the military to say, yeah, let's use this and train our people. And they rely heavily on their existing collectors who don't have this training to give their opinions on whether or not they think it's valid. And it's hard for them to make an honest assessment if they don't already have that knowledge and information themselves. Which in government talk boils down to money. Is the money available? Is that a priority? And it is a priority, but not everybody sees it that way. Thankfully, at the higher levels, especially in bigger agencies like the CIA, there's a lot of time and energy put into detecting deception, a lot of training and information available. So tonight we're going to go through some indicators of deception and lying and things people may or may not do to show or say verbally or non-verbally whether or not they're being truthful and honest. And while there's a lot of phrases such as deception or lying or truthfulness and honesty, I look at it as accuracy versus deception. That phrasing and the technique we go about it helps 
rid us of our biases and preconceived ideas and notions and our ability to remain objective lasts longer and is more clear. So for the first question, we're going to look at what we consider the least reliable form of deception. What's our least reliable indicator? So you have four options here. Your first one is the presence or absence of illustrators when talking. Illustrators are things like anecdotes, examples, and analogies used in storytelling. The other option that we have is vocal quality. This is not the tone of your voice. Vocal quality is something that's measured through acoustics when they take a recording of your voice and you see it on the software and they look for different frequencies, different patterns, shifts, pitches, these types of things to determine are these little inflections or reductions or changes that somewhat do seem like tone sometimes, is that a reliable indicator of deception? The next option is facial microexpressions. If you've ever seen or heard of the TV show Lie to Me, it's, it's a fun, interesting show, but they rely heavily on microexpressions in this show where Tim Roth, you'll see him a lot, get right up in somebody's face. Or when they watch videotapes, they have them blown up so they can see real close-ups of certain parts of their face. The reason for that is micro-expressions typically last about 1 25th, one quarter of a second or less. They're very hard to see. A lot of people see them and don't realize it. Some people identify them naturally, a very select few. And some people, when I told you, instinctually know things, whether they know a person well or don't, and they're picking up on some nonverbals, a lot of times it's micro-expressions. And it's very difficult for people to see them without either a lot of extensive training or just a natural ability. While very small signals and short in duration, they're no different than other nonverbals as they do send certain messages about a person's honesty or whether they're lying, deception, accuracy, emotional state, things like this. Our last option is simply fake smiles. And do you even know how to describe what a fake smile is versus a real one? So we got illustrators, vocal quality, micro-expressions, and fake smiles. I am hoping that you're able to visualize some of this stuff or perhaps think back to a conversation when I'm asking these questions. But for this first one, the least reliable indicator of deception is, in fact, vocal quality. The reason for this is it's far too subjective. While of the four, micro-expressions are actually the probably most reliable if you have somebody skilled enough in reading them, the subjectivity of vocal quality relies heavily on theory more than actual practice and not enough scientific study behind it. Not that it can't ever be developed, but right now that's still considered very unreliable. While it is seen in movies sometimes and can be used, it's typically going to be used in conjunction with many other methods. That's why you don't actually see it too much in the real world. Our next question is, relates to actually asking somebody a question and how they respond, how they repeat that question back to you. So when you ask somebody a question, a very direct question, and you ask them, at what time did you leave the office last Friday afternoon? Of the two options, the first one is they repeat the question full before answering. So you say, at what time did you leave the office last Friday afternoon? And they say, what time did I leave the office last Friday afternoon? The second option is more paraphrasing, where they repeat just a few words. At what time did you leave the office last Friday afternoon? And they say, what time did I leave Friday? So of those two options, which one do you think is more deceptive? When they repeat back to you everything you said, 
or when they paraphrase it. Because remember, they're repeating this back to you. They're not doing it in a way as though they're seeking clarification. They're just repeating the question out loud as though their thoughts are speaking. The person who's being deceptive is actually going to repeat the question pretty much verbatim. And it seems like that wouldn't be the answer sometimes because we're thinking in our head, kind of leading ourselves to believe they're seeking clarification when they actually aren't. They're just repeating the question to answer it. When somebody seeks clarification, they're typically flat asking you if what they're about to say is correct or they phrase it back to you in a question to make sure they understand. So it's important to recognize that difference. Are they seeking clarification or are they just speaking out loud? If they're just speaking out loud and they tend to be going pretty much verbatim, they're buying time to make up a story or clarify, get their thoughts together, what they're going to do, what they're going to say in order to be deceptive. Now, like anything, while this tends to be the deceptive answer and probably is by itself, at least in the world of intelligence or even law enforcement would take other actions, other questions, other methods and techniques to really nail this down. But generally speaking, in most civil conversation with people every day, it's almost always going to be deception. The next question is the most common one, which is about eye contact, which I believe I discussed in the last podcast. Is the deceptive person going to really try to hold that eye contact or are they going to avoid it? And it's one of the biggest myths that people avoid direct eye contact. The reason people that are deceptive actually try to maintain a lot of eye contact is this belief, and it's typically conscious thought at the time, although it can be subconscious, that maintaining that eye contact will sell their story. And the reason they believe that is because of the myth that avoiding eye contact is what actually makes you deceptive, but that's not the case. Now, another one we can look at is you ask somebody a direct question, like the previous one or another one where you want an answer, something that typically seems like a yes or no or a pretty solid answer, like what time did you leave? And they start the phrase by saying, to be honest or honestly, phrases that we've heard many times before, or often you'll hear in like courtrooms, at least on TV, what I recall, phrases like that. Is that person being honest or are they being deceptive? The most common belief is that they are actually being honest because they're using words like honest, or they're not trying to challenge their memory or their facts by saying, I recall they're trying to illustrate that, hey, that's how much of my memory I actively have that I can consciously describe. However, the only actual truth is people who say that are being deceptive. One of the kind of so-called jokes they say is somebody who starts a statement with, to be honest or honestly, is pretty much going to follow with a dishonest statement. The reason why is those are called qualifiers. The facts should speak for themselves. If something is truthful and honest, you don't need to start the same by saying honestly. And when somebody says, from what I recall, is again buying time. And typically what it tends to lead to is they're choosing what to omit. So we have to look at that as deception because while a half truth is a whole lie, and I do understand that in the world of Intel, they can be giving you 100% solid information, just not 100% of the information because they're omitting facts or omitting information which is typically what comes with a qualifier. So understand that, that statistically, based on research studies and just assets I've worked with and interrogations I've done, when somebody says, to be honest, honestly, or I recall, things like that, they actually tend to tell you to the best of their ability what they know to be true, but they also are almost guaranteed omitting some information they don't want to share. 
the next ones is about motivations. While this is important to have the information, it's also in our nature that when something happens that's negative or we don't like, or in this case, somebody admits to a lie or gets caught to lie and they admit it, is we want to know why. We want to know the motivation behind it. So there's some choices you have here, and we're going to choose from those to see what do you think the best option is to determine somebody's motivation? Why did they do it? And this is a person who admitted they lied to you. So one thing you can do, and, and you see this on cop shows all the time. I don't know that cops actually do this, but you do see it on cop shows, is where they'll tell them all the facts they know. Here's all the people I've talked to. Here's everything I have. Here's what I know. And I'm not going to listen to any BS, basically. If enough information is there in the interrogation world, that approach is called we know all. It can also be coupled with things like file and dossier, where you have actual proof, photographs, documents, recordings, these type of things. Like, hey, here's what I know. I know everything. Another option is you could just say, why did you behave that way? That seems reasonable as we talk about the behavior of children sometimes when they screw up or maybe in a relationship you use the term bad behavior. So that does seem like a reasonable option. Another option is to ask them what made them do what they did. Short of responding with the devil made me do it, what made you do that? What is it that got you to decide that was the thing to do? And our last option is called the silent approach, which is exactly what it sounds like. You're silent. You just sit there and you just let them keep talking. You let them sweat. This actually can work. You do see it in the movies too. They get nervous because nothing's happening. And you're hoping and they get what we call diarrhea of the mouth and just start spewing more information. So this person has lied and you want to know their motivation. And our options are the we know all. Here's everything I know and who I've talked to and all my evidence. There's why did you behave that way? There's what made you do that? And there's just be silent and allow them to start feeling more uncomfortable. The overall goal, whether it's law enforcement, an interrogator, or you're just trying to find out what your kid did, is to get the information. And we, of course, want truthful and accurate information. Because they've already lied, they've already started to cooperate. So the door is open and the last thing you want to do is cause confrontation. And three of these actually do cause forms of confrontation and can close that door that became open for whatever reason. So the real answer about motivation is, what made you do what you did? What was your thought process? What got you to that point? You're allowing them to continue to explain. This can very easily get into storytelling where you can use other skills about how much of a prologue versus epilogue? Are they following a chronological story and they can't get out of that? It opens a lot of doors for you to determine if there's other forms of deception. And it also gives them the freedom to be like, I've already opened the door. Let me just get the rest of this off my chest. It's non-confrontational. And it's the most likely way you're going to get them to continue cooperating and probably just give you all the information a lot quicker. So now we'll switch back to a little bit of body language. If you've been following the Gray Man Concepts Facebook page, I've been putting some photos up every morning with descriptions about some facial expressions and some body language stuff. Some more will be coming out this week. This one, we're going to hit back to one of our earlier questions and talk about how do you identify a fake smile? What is it that makes a smile fake? How do you tell? And what we're looking at here is muscular movements in the face. So we got muscles on our jawline when our jaw moves or we're chewing. we got these muscles that make movements when we smile. We also have muscles at the corner of our mouth where our lips move. 
We also have muscles up around our eyes and higher cheekbone areas. To keep this one simple, it's the muscles around the eyes. You can Google image for fake smiles and real smiles. You'll find some comparisons. And if you've never really noticed it before, when you look at a comparison of a fake and a real smile of the same person and you see those eye muscles, you'll probably never forget it again and you'll probably always identify it. I always say that duck lip thing that girls do, they used to do a lot, I think they still do it, is also a good indicator. It makes those eye muscles even more noticeable that they're not using them. So I always say the duck lip thing is your biggest indicator, but it's the eye muscles. So look that up, see some pictures for that. I think I might have that coming up in a poster. I might have already posted it. If not, I'll find it and get it up there. But that's the biggest thing. You can see those smiles. You can determine very quickly, is that an honest laugh at my joke? When you're wondering why somebody's laughing at their joke, if it's a real laughter, a real smile, they'll often move their head away because they're trying to hide their eyes even they don't realize it. And if you ever get a shot of their eyes, look for those muscles around the eyes. If they're not moving, that's a fake laugh. And you'll catch women doing it a lot when they're around guys they like. Our next question, hopefully by now, if you've been listening to the podcast, even if you've only listened to, say, the last one, you probably know the answer to this. But when somebody's being deceptive or they're lying, the mistakes they make that reveal the deception are going to be more likely found what in the words of their story or in their nonverbal behavior. Now, a lot of you out there, if you haven't been following this, are going to say it's the words, but it's actually the nonverbal behavior. The reason we say it's the words is a lot of us don't realize how much nonverbals there are, how much we instinctually pick upon, how much we're not really taught about it. And we go for the words of the story and we try to chase the story down to see whether or not it makes sense to us and whether or not we're going to decide if that's true. But as I've said before, when it comes down to it, nonverbal behavior, depending on the study you read, averages around 70% or so of all communication. Now, if you're thinking the remaining 30 is verbal, it's not. It's usually 10% or less. That remaining 20% is the tonal quality of their voice, the tones they're using. For example, stress can tighten the vocal cords, leading to a higher pitch in the voice, the tone which is not the same as the vocal quality. That's why I pointed that out as an earlier question. And if you think you identify that stress in the vocal cords, it's a lot easier to hear in a deeper voice when it goes higher. You hear it a lot of times with laughter. That's still a type of stress because it's causing stress in the vocal cords. It's not necessarily the same as emotional stress, but emotional stress will cause it. Physical stress can cause it too. But there are other things about it. But the vocal tone is actually number two even though it's only about 20%, with only about your words mattering about 10% when it comes down to determine if somebody's being deceptive or not. Now, the reason I say this is to support something I've said in earlier podcasts. This is why when you're looking at body language and nonverbals and you watch, say, politicians, for example, I tell you the best thing you can do is watch it without the audio. It's to get rid of what your brain's taught, what you believe consciously and subconsciously that the words matter. It's to learn these nonverbals then go back and see what they're saying. That's what's going to help you determine deception a lot more accurately and learn these skills a lot quicker. For this next one, I'm not going to ask you the question. I'm just going to give you the words. Take these words, write them down. I'll give you a second, grab a pen if you're that serious about it. And look these up under Google Images for facial expressions. There's a lot of facial expressions that can be made. But there are seven that are proven to be universal throughout the world, regardless of culture. It's important to look these up to make sure that you're very clear on what they are because some of these in your head you'll think, I know what that looks like, but you want to be very clear on what these are. They're all symmetrical except for one being asymmetrical, meaning 
symmetrical is they look the same on both sides of the face, whereas asymmetrical, they're opposite. So if you think people part their hair down the middle and comb it to the sides is symmetrical, you got to part more to the side that's asymmetrical. So the seven expressions are fear and sadness, disgust, happiness, contempt, surprise, and anger. If you're writing these down, I will say them one more time. Fear and sadness, disgust and happiness, contempt, surprise, and anger. Of those seven, contempt is the one that's asymmetrical. That'll make sense when you see it because you'll see what the lips do on the face. And that'll help you understand what symmetrical versus asymmetrical means if you're unclear on that. Now, referencing President Clinton's impeachment again, because I like that it's on this actual test, but I've used this in his impeachment many times to show deception and some of his verbal statements. One of the statements he made had kind of a double no-go, as we would say, in the military or the intelligence world on deception, which was far worse to me than all the touching of the face, even though the nonverbals are stronger. He made a statement, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, comma, Miss Lewinsky. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. Sorry, I can't do his voice. Now, while did not sounds like proper English, contractions are so common, it's called a non-contractual denial. This is something I brought up before. Do you understand that if you get in a fight with somebody in a relationship and you keep repeating the question over and over and over again, which is an interrogation report, and they're like, I didn't do it, I didn't do it, and they're getting upset because you won't stop, and after several attempts, they're like, look, I did not do that, is not an indicator of deception. They might be full of it. Don't get me wrong. But it's when they do it right away like that, when they do it earlier, after multiple attempts, yeah, it could be, but it doesn't carry the weight unless they're doing it right away like he did. In fact, if he would have responded, based on how that question was, and said, I did not cheat on my wife, that would be a far more truthful statement than being this specific. But a non-contractual denial, the second thing he did was say Miss Lewinsky, which is a very formal way, even though they're in a kind of a court setting. That's called a distancing statement. It's when we take a situation, and the way I describe it is, we're typically, for whatever reason, taking one specific statement and being far more professional or formal or less personal in the way that we identify something or someone. As an example, one of the organizations I used to contract for, we would do interviews of military officers where they would write a series of essays and they'd often talk about their personal life in one of the essays. And sometimes I would see how they talked about their parents. And we would see statements like where people mentioned mom and dad was very common, or they would say mother and father, which depending on how formal their writing was may not be out of place. But then we'd see things that didn't match, like my mom, and they talk about their mom, and then they say their father. Or they talk about their dad and their mother. And it's not that you can't do that, but it would typically be in the same sentence where they'd use a very personal statement like mom and go and talk a little bit about the relationship. And then they say, but my father was a strict disciplinarian or something like that about one of their parents or perhaps even a sibling. And it would show a distancing statement in that relationship. And then we would use that as part of the discussion to determine what kind of situation they had, what was their situation at home what was that relationship like because that could affect the job placement they were looking at but that's just one example but the distancing statement like that 
is very noticeable. And when you see it, pay attention to it. That's a strong indicator of deception. And if you see it coupled in a sentence like this with a non-contracted denial, especially when it's very specific, you definitely got something there. Because very likely what you're going to see with that statement coupled to it or around it is either a lot of strong eye gazing, trying not to break eye contact, which we already talked about, or some of that nonverbal face touching, hear no evil, see no evil type thing. The next one is we have story structure. When we're telling a story, which is typically part of a narrative to a question, and we're looking at a couple of things. First is the prologue versus epilogue. Prologue being the backstory to what we're about to talk about, and the epilogue being kind of the summary or after effects of the story we're talking about. One of those is a big indicator of deception, and the other one's not. And it's actually the prologue where we give a lot of backstories. We're almost trying to justify. The other thing is you'll find that somebody's being deceptive when telling a story will strictly stay to the chronological order. Now, there are people out there that the way their brain works, if you ask them what's number 12 on the list, they have to go through the first 11 before they can get to 12. They just can't jump to there. But with the exception of those few people, you'll find that a lot of prologues will come with a chronological story they have difficult bouncing around from, and they have to go step by step of what they did. Now, if the questioning basis of this was to go step by step, then you can't blame it for being chronological. The other thing is emotion tends to be tied more towards a truthful story. And don't think of emotion as being emotional like people breaking down or getting excited. There's all kinds of emotions, just as many positive as negative ones. And you'll see that in the body language too. And you'll find that when people tell stories, that typically the process in which we tell a story and how we follow it and how we might bounce around a little bit or make a small correction is because our memory of it tends to be tied to the most significant emotional events or the strongest emotional ties or whatever our strongest emotional connection are to people or places in that story and not the chronological order of how things happened. So when you see like I used to, oh, it used to kill me watching these cop shows like cops where they pull people over for speeding tickets and I'm not bashing on women, but man, there's a lot of women out there that can really do a convincing cry and get out of tickets. But I would laugh all the time because I would watch it and I'd be like, to me, it was obvious. So I would try it sometimes and people used to play clips for me and I wouldn't look, I would just listen to them talking. I'm like, man, that crying sounds good. But the thing is, while they had all this strong emotion and they would tell a good story or something really bad that happened that couldn't necessarily be disproven or need to be proven, where they'd screw up is they would give the backstory of everything that happened that led up to them speeding that wasn't an emergency. And I'm like, oh, yep, they're full of it. And that was usually it. And then also it'd be the chronological thing. And here's the thing with the chronological order. What you'll find is this. Let's say there's five general pieces to this 60-second or 30-second dialogue with a police officer in this example. right? They don't have to go back to the beginning. But let's say in order to answer your question, they have to start by saying what happened right before the answer they should be giving. So they go to number two to give you the answer to number three. That's because they have to go back far enough to go into that chronological order. If it wasn't a lie, if it wasn't deception, they would just flat be able to answer that. So that's where you got to be careful on the emotional thing. Look for that chronological order and that prologue because that's what's going to give people away. The last one is pretty simple. It's about the details when they're giving details around the main event and everything else isn't as detailed, is that going to be truthful or is that going to be deceptive? Are we giving a lot of details about a lot of things? Or are we focusing most of the details on 
the main subject of what we're telling in the story. And while it might seem like more details is more believable, the fact is when the details are mainly focused on the actual story, the main content of it, the main context of what they're being asked or what they're responding to, that's what's going to tend to be the details. Part of the reason they have too many details in these other areas is whether it's conscious or not on their part, it's to cloud your mind with the idea that they have all these details that they can remember. Therefore, they must be truthful, even though the details they're giving you around the main story are either made up, could be deceptive a little bit, or it's just they don't know as much about it as they want to. And it helps them look a little better and looks a little more convincing. So while there's a lot of nonverbals I told you to go look up or that you can find in the Gray Man Concepts this week, there'll be some verbal stuff next week. Big things when you're asking questions. You want to avoid yes or no questions as much as possible when you want information. Some questions are unavoidable in that fact, but we want to ask questions in a way that require them to form senses and make a narrative response. That puts people in the position of having to follow a prepared story or create one on the spot, as well as display more body language, which gives you more of an opportunity to observe and listen to look for signs of deception and pay attention to things while more truth is associated with emotional storytelling if they're given a lot of prologue and or chronological order that emotion is garbage watch out for unprovoked non-contractual denials watch out for the distancing statements and most of all if somebody does admit something to you even just a tidbit of what you believe they did that was wrong don't get confrontational. Go straight for the motivation. What made you do that? Get them to keep talking, open that door farther, and tell you more about why they made that decision. That's probably going to lead to more information and more answers and more questions that will get you answers instead of most likely escalating to confrontation. Thank you again for being here. I do hope that you enjoyed this. Please like and share on whatever platform you're on if you believe other people would enjoy this. You can reach out to me on Twitter and Facebook. The links are in the show notes as well as a link to the book Lie Spotting that I put in last week as well. That's one of the two basic intro books that I like to use when teaching people about deception and body language. They do have a website you can look up. It's simply at liespotting.com and you will see where I took some of the information that I have put up. I believe it will be coming out next week. I don't think it's the stuff from this week. I use that information because it's already created and it drives traffic to somebody else's creation and I don't need to spend time recreating a wheel that's already rolling just fine. As we continue on through this, if you have any questions, please send them out to me or if you're looking for any recommendations on other materials, just ask. I'll definitely try to steer you in the right direction. If you're looking to buy the book Lie Spotting, make sure you Google that. Look on eBay, see if there's any used books. If you use that link in the show notes to Amazon, I'm an affiliate. And no cost to you that can help support the show. But make sure if you do look that up on a place like Amazon, if they have other offerings, look at audiobooks or perhaps even used books from bookstores and you might find a great discount. I do want to add on since we got into some verbal deception, some stuff that's geared more towards sales, but it's about open body language, inviting body language to help be more persuasive. There's a book called Covert Persuasion, which you can also find on Amazon. But if you want to look this book up, type in Covert Persuasion, then PDF. There is a free PDF online, a couple of them, where you can get the whole book for free. It's easy to read, so unless you want the hard copy, I would go out there today, get that free book. I'll put the link in the show notes. It gives a lot of examples, like some of the questions we went over tonight, about different ways that you can persuade and influence people. 
While a good number of it tends to lead more to what it's like uh, selling things, you can easily translate that in everyday conversation and a good portion of it just relates in general to any conversation. That's a book I give to a lot of people that work in the sales industry, like selling cars, houses, selling products for their companies. That's an easy read free book that you can get without spending any money. Thank you and enjoy the rest of your day or evening and we'll have another podcast for you in a few days.